Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. It's good again to see your kind of smiling faces, at least your smiling eyes. And we're just uh, thrilled with the fact that you're joining us back again. It's just, uh, just a different thing to speak to an empty room than to see uh, people here and celebrating and, and worshiping God and clapping and whatever. So we're just really grateful that we could begin to open our doors. Let's take a minute to pray before we jump into our subject today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love. It's just absolutely amazing. We can't even begin to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your love that was poured out toward us, especially in the sending of your Son to be our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray, Lord, you do a work in our hearts today. I pray if any today don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they'd find him today. And you'd help us to grab a hold of your word and apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a student at WVU, West Virginia University, I was required to take a calculus course. And so I showed up the first day of the class, and the teacher introduced herself, and then she made an announcement that really caught me off guard. She said, if any of you are sitting in this class right now and you have not taken the proper math prerequisite, and she listed what the course was, she said, you can't stay in the course. I want you to come up to me after the class and tell me who you are and I will remove you from the roles. Well, I had not taken the prerequisite. I didn't know there was a prerequisite for this course, but I didn't know what to do about it because I kind of needed to stay in that course because it was part of a, a track I was on. If I didn't take that class right then, it would mean I'd have to stay in school an extra semester just for the one course that I was missing. The teacher went on to say this, that if you think that you can stay in the class and not get caught, forget it. I will know whether or not you've had the prerequisite or not. Now, as I sat there, I thought, I I don't know what to do. Now, part of me did. I mean, I felt like, as a Christian, this is probably an integrity issue. That's what it felt like for me. It felt like, you know, I was just being dishonest if, if, I, didn't go to the, if I didn't go to the teacher and confess that I didn't have the prerequisite. You know, I just felt I was being dishonest, but, but I, I really needed the course, and so what was I going to do? And so I decided, well, I won't, I won't say anything today. And I waited until the next class. Well, the next class began, and the teacher reiterated the same warning. There are some of you here today that are sitting in this class and you have not taken the prerequisite. If you've not successfully completed the prerequisite, you are not to be in this class. I will know who you are. I will have to remove you. And I thought she's speaking directly to me. I thought I'm I'm just, I'm gonna get caught. But I didn't do anything. Class after class, I showed up, but I dreaded this class. Every time I showed up for this class, I sat there and I thought, this is the day she's gonna 
you know, call me out in front of the whole class. Tim Herring, I want you to come up here. You know, I thought that's what was going to happen here. And again, it felt to me like I was like I was like cheating. I felt guilty. I felt I was being dishonest. I felt like I was being deceitful. I mean, I had all those feelings as, as well as the fact that I thought I was going to get caught. But I stayed in the course. Finally, it was time for the first exam. I was taking the exam and the teacher walked over to my desk and she bent over and she whispered in my ear. She said, I'd like for you to move. I want you to move over to that seat over there, which was a row away. It was a a seat that was in between two other guys. And she said, I want you to sit between those two guys over there. And I thought, oh, she knows. She knows I'm I'm a cheater. And so I picked up my bag and my, all my stuff and my test and I went over there and sat down and all the way through the test I thought, this is it, you know, she's going she's gonna to kick me out of the class, she knows. And I just felt so exposed. When I was done with the test, I went up to the desk and I dropped it on the desk and went to walk away and she stopped me and she said, oh, I want to let you know why I did what I did, why I had you move. She said, those two guys that you sat in between, she said, I believe they were cheating. And she said, I knew that you were honest. I knew I could trust you. So that's why I put you in between those two. Now, can you imagine how I felt at that point? I mean, I didn't know this. I'd never met her before this happened. I don't think she knew anything about me. I wasn't a pastor at the time. I I was the director of a Christian campus organization, but I don't think she knew that. There was something about me that kind of communicated to her that I must be honest, but it made me feel all the worse. Now, I ended up doing okay on that first test, and I learned early on in the course that the prerequisite that I was missing was a class that I could actually take online. And so I enrolled in it online. I paid for the course online and I studied and I passed all the tests online so that when I was done with that course, I was done with both of them. And so by the time the class was done, I was legitimate for the first time. Now I think all of us can relate to the sense of feeling guilty sometimes when we do something that we know that's wrong. We all know what that feels like, just to be bothered by something that we're, we've done that's wrong, where we feel like maybe we're going to get caught. I remember the first time I felt guilty about anything at all. I was just a kid, and I had taken something from off my parents' dresser, and I lost it. I'd taken it. I don't know why I took it. It just, it was like it was shiny or something. I took it, And I lost it. And my parents noticed that it was missing. And my dad pulled my three brothers and me, all of us, aside and looked right in her eyes and said, did you take it? I said, no, little liar. And the guilt I felt, how much better would it have been if I had just been honest about it? I, I mean, I, I don't think I would have even gotten in trouble hardly at all, but, but every day, every day I woke up thinking they're going to find out today that I'm the one who did it, or maybe I didn't know where it was. Maybe they'd find it with my stuff or something, and I was going to get caught, and, and, and frankly, it just wasn't worth it. The guilt wasn't worth it. 
But guilt is one of those things that uh, really can weigh us down. Now, these are kind of minor examples, but all of us, all of us experience at times guilt. And there's, a, there's an objective guilt that we experience, but there's also a subjective guilt. We, we, of course, know the difference between the two. Objective guilt means you do something wrong and you are guilty. And so if you commit a crime, you're guilty. It's, a, it's an objective truth. It's a reality. You are guilty. But subjective guilt is the feeling we have about something we do. And, and sometimes we feel guilty about something we've done wrong, but we all recognize that there are times in which we feel guilty, but we probably shouldn't. Guilty is not always objective. Sometimes it's a subjective feeling that we have, and we've all experienced it. King David was someone who experienced both types of guilt, and he talked about it in Psalm 32. Most scholars believe that Psalm 32 was written after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband to hide it. And for some period of time, this guy carried the weight of what he had done. His heart was condemning him. I suspect that during that period of time, he'd had a hard time even sacrificing to God because his heart was condemning him. But in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, notice the two types of guilt here. He wrote, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. So he starts by saying, when I was silent about it, life was hard for me. It's like I was groaning all day long. Your hand, it felt like your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained. Isn't that kind of like what it's like? And then he said, I I confessed it to you, God. Finally, I got right with you, and you took away the guilt of my sin. Now, the word guilt used in that verse is objective guilt. And of course, the two are connected because we can't many times get rid of our guilty feelings until we get rid of the the guilt that causes them. We need to know that our guilt has been removed and then we will experience the freedom that comes from being set free. And, And David began this psalm wonderfully with joy. And he ended the psalm with joy. He said, how blessed it is when someone's transgressions are forgiven, whose sins have been removed, when, when they're standing before God and there's nothing there. And that's the joy that I think we as Christians could experience when our trust is in Christ who takes away from us our guilt, objective guilt, so that it can be removed from us subjectively. Now, the past couple weeks, we've been doing a series called He Is, and we've been focusing on what, who Jesus is. And first week of the series, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the light of the world, and he came into this world to illuminate the darkness. Last week, I talked about the fact that he was God, was and is God, and he's our creator. But today, I want to focus on a title that was given to Jesus that applies to our subject here today. The title is He Was Called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He alone is the Lamb of God who can take away our sin, our guilt, and again, with it, I think, the subjective guilty feelings. Now, this idea of a lamb taking away sin is all over in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament about 
a lamb that has the ability to take away our sin. But this exact expression comes from John 1.29, which is where I'm going to spend most of our attention here today. Uh, John 1.29, let me give you a little bit of the background, but John the Baptist, as he's called, or he was called John the Baptizer. It's a Christian name given to him. He didn't go by that title, but we call him John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. He was the one that was given the privilege of introducing Jesus to the world. And when he saw Jesus, this is what he said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, this terminology of Lamb of God who takes away sin is probably familiar to you. But to John's listeners, this was a a radical statement. I don't believe they had any idea what he was talking about. You see, we know that Jesus was to become for us a sacrifice on a cross. We know that part of the story, but they didn't have that. I suspect even John the Baptist, when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I suspect he stopped and thought, what did I just say? You know, the Spirit of God revealed it to him. He spoke it out. In what sense was Jesus going to be this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And he would have known it had something to do with this sacrificial system. Now, this phrase, who takes away the sin of the world, is very significant. He takes away the sin of the world. One of my favorite biblical scholars is a guy named R. Jameson. I quote him often. I really like his perspective on things. And he indicates that that phrase takes away, the sin of the world takes away, can be translated one of two ways and it includes both ideas, not just one of them. Two ideas are conveyed here. One is it means to take up or take up from. The other is it means to take it away. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes up from us our sin, puts it upon himself, and then he carts it away. An illustration that I've often thought of when I've thought of this is that of a a book bag. If you imagine for a moment, I have a book bag up here, and if you imagine that the book bag itself represents the sin that all of us commit, we all have sin, and we carry it, you know? Now, through Christ, of course, it's removed, but, but sin is like something we carry. Now, the weight of the bag represents the guilty feelings we have. And there are some people that go through their whole lives and they're guilty all the time. I know some people that they're carrying, they're, I mean, this is a smaller bag, but there's some people I know that their bag is huge and they go through life and they're carrying this heavy bag related to their sin. Because they know they've done things that are wrong, but they don't know how to get rid of the the guilt of it. And so these guilty feelings, they're carrying with them everywhere they go. And it impacts us more than we realize. A few years ago, I asked the director of a mental health facility this question. I said, how many of your patients do you think who have been checked in to your facility, how many of them are here because of guilt? where guilt is a significant factor in their lives or the main factor in their lives. And I was a little surprised at his answer. He said, well, first of all, I've never studied it, but but then he said, "I, I think most of them. And then he stopped for a moment and he said, no, I'd say all of them. 
I was really surprised by that. Realize that people are carrying things, but the Lamb of God takes up from us our sin upon himself and he carries it away, making it possible for the subjective guilt and the shame that we experience to go with it as well. But let me read John 129 again and talk a little bit more about the Lamb of God part. 129 again says the next day Jesus, or John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? Where does that concept come from? And I, I alluded to earlier the fact that I think it, it relates to the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. In a lot of scholars, that's what they believe. It, it's the entire thing. If you read your Old Testament, you, you read a lot about sacrifices taking place. And Jesus is the fulfillment. All of them point to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. It's a prominent theme for us. Now, for us, this idea of sacrificing animals, I think, is odd or offensive. I trust none of you have an altar in your backyard where you're sacrificing animals. Uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a weird practice if you think about it. All the way through the Bible, you, you find out about them sacrificing animals. And it raises the question, why? I mean, why is there, why so much of that shedding of blood in the Old Testament? Why so many rules? Why so many examples of people killing animals? You know, some of the kings killed tens of thousands of animals. Why, why do it? And I think the simple answer is this. Paul put it this way. He said, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages, the penalty of sin is death. That's what our sin costs. Death. You remember when God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, you can have everything you want. It's all yours. They lived in a paradise, and it was really wonderful. He said, you can eat from any tree you want, everything. It's all yours, everything, except one thing. The tree that's in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and by the way, I believe that was a real tree. I think we're talking about a real Adam and Eve. God said, don't eat from that tree because the day you eat from it, you'll die. Everything else is yours. Just don't touch that tree. Now, have you ever thought before how harsh of a penalty that is? Are, are, you, are, are you telling me that you eat a piece of fruit and you die? And I want you to understand something about the death here too. It's, it, the death is physical death, but it's also spiritual death. It's also eternal death. And God said, the day you eat from it, you will die. Why is it such a harsh penalty? Well, it's because of what happened when they disobeyed God. They didn't trust him. They thought God was withholding something good from them. And so they took from the tree and sin entered into the world and here's where the death part comes in. If, if you've been here for a while, you know that death is not an end, it's a separation. That's why death was the penalty. Death is a separation, it's not an end. Physical death is not an end, it's a separation of the body from the spirit. The body stays here. Spirit goes someplace, it's a separation. Spiritual death is a separation of people from God relationally. It's illustrated by Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. Suddenly there was a separation there. Eternal death is what happens if someone doesn't fix the sin problem in this life. 
If you don't come to Christ and have your sins forgiven, you're separated from God for all eternity, but it's a separation. And so what you realize is that when God said to Adam and Eve, when you eat from the tree, you'll die, he was saying separation's gonna come into this world and ruin everything. You know, you were created to dwell in my presence forever, but now you will die physically. You were created to have a relationship with me, but now there's a separation between us. You were created to spend an eternity with me in heaven, but now you're disqualified. Death came in. That's why it was death, a separation. Now, God had told Adam and Eve, don't do it. And they hadn't listened to him. And do you remember what happened as soon as they ate, as it relates to our subject here today? As soon as they ate from the tree, they experienced for the first time two things. One was guilt, and the second was shame. They felt guilty about what they'd done. That's why they hid from God, and they felt shame. They suddenly realized, we don't have any clothes on, and they were embarrassed. And they tried from a human perspective to try to fix the situation. And so in the guilt part, they tried to hide from God. And on the shame part, they tried to put some fig leaves together and cover up the the immodesty. They tried to hide their shame in that way. But neither of them could solve the problem. We cannot solve the problem of our own guilt and shame. They tried, even as people do. But see, God created us with a conscience and, and we do feel guilt. Our, our conscience feels something when we do something wrong. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote that God has written his very laws on our hearts. And then when we violate his laws, even if we don't have a Bible, when we do things that we just intuitively know are right or wrong, our conscience comes to bear. It either accuses us or it excuses us. That's what our conscience does. And this is, by the way, something that God put in there. And so suddenly we experience this thing, we feel, we feel something, these guilty feelings. Now, some people have suggested before that religion is the, to blame for all guilty feelings. Like if you could get rid of religion, you know, because religion tells you you're, you did something bad. And so get rid of religion and you won't ever have guilty feelings. That's not the case. God created us to kind of know right from wrong. And when you do wrong, when, when I lied to my parents, even if no one had ever told me don't lie, I knew in my heart I was wrong. I was wrong. And it weighed upon me. And so Adam and Eve ate from that tree and they felt it and they hid from God and they tried to handle it in a human way. And God could have at this point just let them go. He could have said, you know, I told you don't. You did it. You bought yourself death, separation between you and me forever, but he chose to go after us. That's something I love about our God. I know people think of God as being just a a judgmental God sometimes. Our God loves to pursue people. He loves to go after us when we are lost, when we've gone astray. That's the, the nature of God. There were still consequences for what they did wrong, of course, and we experience them to this day. We all still die. You know, all of us, because of sin, we forfeit the right to live physically, spiritually, and eternally. But at this point in the story, when God caught up with Adam and Eve when they were hiding and he approached them about this, God did something that illustrates what I think he wants to do for every one of us. It says here that 
and it ties with Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says he clothed them with animal skins. He replaced the, the temporary fig leaves around their loins with animal skins. In Genesis 3 and verse 21, we read, then the Lord, or the Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed, clothed them. Now, don't, don't miss the implication here. In order to clothe Adam and Eve, a death was required. God is the one who shed the first blood in the Bible. A, a death was required here, the death of some animals. It was a picture of the fact that for Adam and Eve to have their guilt and their shame removed, it required death. The wages of sin is death. Now, I want to suggest here today, and I can't prove it from the early chapters of Genesis, but it's obvious to me that God killed these animals, likely lambs, and he clothed them, but when he did that, that he introduced the sacrificial system that you read about throughout the Old Testament. After this happens, you immediately find Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, sacrificing on altars. This is when I think God has instituted it. He, he did something maybe they didn't fully understand, but he, I, I think they were watching. Adam and Eve were watching when he killed the animals. And he said, that thing is dying because of you. It has to die. And he said, now from now on, what I want you to do is offer these offerings for me. Sacrifice them on an altar. Because without the shedding of blood, which blood in the Bible represents life, and the shedding of blood represents death, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so he set up this system. And by the way, I think it was essential that an animal die. You remember the story of Cain and Abel, the two children of Adam and Eve, how Cain brought from his gardens, basically, or his, his orchards. He, he brought like fruits and vegetables to offer up to God. And Cain, or I'm sorry, Abel brought an animal. And he spilled the blood of the animal. And it says in Genesis Three or Genesis 4, that God didn't accept Cain or his sacrifice. Cain, to me, represents all people who try to get to God on their terms. I'll bring you what I want to bring. When God said all along, no, no, the wages of sin is death. Blood has to be spilled. Don't bring what you want. You've got to come by means that I am going to institute here. But here's the thing about the sacrifices in the Old Testament. I don't know how to put it, but they don't work. They didn't work. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's always the case. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and whatever else. It's impossible to take away sins. You say, well, then why on earth did, did they do it if, if it didn't take away sin? And why doesn't it work? Well, the, re the reason it doesn't work is that they're not people. You know, some may not like this idea, but people alone were created in the image of God. And if someone is to pay a penalty for me, it has to be a person. It can't be an animal. Kind of a lesser life form. We were created in the image of God. The only way 
that my guilt could be removed is if some person would take upon himself my guilt. That person, of course, went by the name of Jesus. Now, most scholars believe that not only was John the Baptist when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, referring to the entire Old Testament sacrificial system that all pointed to Jesus. See, that's really the answer. The sacrifices were meant to point to Jesus the day when he would send his own son. He would take on flesh and blood. He'd become a man. And then he could actually die in our place and for our sin. But many people believe that John the Baptist was also specifically referring to Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53, written by the prophet Isaiah, he lived 700 years before Christ was even born. Beginning in verse 5, we read, but he was pierced because of our transgressions. An obvious reference to Christ. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. In other words, the punishment that would lead to us having peace with God was placed on him. He took it for us. The punishment for our peace was on him. And we're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to his own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. Again, the Old Testament sacrificial system, all the way in the Old Testament throughout it, is never meant to save anyone. It was meant to point to the day when God would send his own sinless son to be the savior of the world. On my first trip to Israel, I happened to be seated between two orthodox rabbis. Uh, they, were, uh, they, they were very orthodox. They had the little boxes and the phylacteries on their clothes and everything else. And, um, and at a certain point, I decided to engage one of them in a conversation. I really wanted to talk about Christ, but I was just fascinated that I could ask some questions of these rabbis. And so I turned to one of them and I said, I have a question for you. I said, you know, in, in the Old Testament, your scriptures, uh, you read a lot about sacrificing of animals. I want to know why. Because... Killing animals is, is, uh, seems cruel. It's, you know, I think I even used the word sadistic. Like, why would God require such a thing? What about sacrificing an animal does anything for anybody? And he said, well, God commanded it so that our sins could be atoned for or removed. God said, we have to sacrifice for them to be removed. And I said, yeah, but what about killing an animal does that? How does it work? I don't get it. And then I added this. I said, and also, I'm just wondering this. Where is your sacrifice today? See, you you can't sacrifice anymore. What do you do now? And he said, well, right now, we just, we kind of symbolize it through lighting of candles. So instead of sacrificing an animal, we light a candle. And I said, well, that's not what God required Without the shedding of blood, there could be no removal of sin. And I said, do you, do you mind me answering the question, my own question, from a Christian perspective? And he was actually interested. I said, well, let me answer it. I said, you know, when Jesus 
began his public ministry, the, the person who announced him was a guy named John the Baptist. And when John saw Jesus at the outset of his ministry, these were the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I said, those sacrifices, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. That, that sacrifice, the sacrifices were always meant to just be a picture. It was always meant to point to the day. You remember when you'd offer a sacrifice in the Old Testament that you'd bring in a lamb without any blemishes. It had to be perfect. And you'd confess your sins over the head of that animal and then you'd kill it and it would die so the one offering it could live. And I said, Jesus is the blameless lamb of God. We believe he was the son of God and God the son, he was without sin. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he rose again from the dead and the tomb is empty, it demonstrates God accepted the payment on our behalf. The rabbi was quiet for a while. He didn't disagree with me. I knew that he had something to think about and I just began to pray that God would somehow open his eyes. What do we do with all of this? Well, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude as I think of Easter coming up and what Jesus did for me. I was guilty and I felt guilty, but Jesus took upon himself my guilt. He allowed himself to be condemned in my place and for my sin, and I'm no longer guilty. I am forgiven. And as Christians, I think, I want to encourage you to walk confidently in that truth. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10, 19, and then 20 to 23. And I'm just suggesting don't carry the load of guilt. He wrote, therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, sanctuary is to enter into God's presence. We have, and brothers as brothers and sisters, we have boldness, confidence to enter into the very sanctuary where God is through the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, perhaps an allusion to the fact that our faith is sealed through the illustration of baptism. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He says, because Jesus shed his blood for us, he took our guilt from us, we can now boldly enter the throne of grace. We do not have to carry the load of guilt, and yet we do sometimes. I'm just saying, believe it, believe that Christ has removed it, he took it upon himself, and he carried it away from us. Now, it's possible that some who are listening to me here today don't know where you stand with God and the application for you I want to encourage you to, to put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Most famous verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In the Old Testament, they would bring their lamb and they'd confess their sin on the head of that lamb and then they would kill it. What Jesus wants us to do is to, in a sense, confess our sins and place our hands on him by faith and acknowledge him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, it's really just a decision we make at a certain point where we say, I know I've sinned against you, I can't fix it. And I do believe you sent your son Jesus for me. 
die in my place and for my sin. And I want to put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. I receive you as my Savior. And we have the promise that God will give to us eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your amazing kindness toward us. I want to thank you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus for us. What an amazing plan. We could just can't hardly even imagine such a thing. That the Son of God and God the Son would take on flesh and blood so that he could become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We do acknowledge our sin and we by faith place our hands on him to be our Savior. To take upon himself our sin and to carry it away as far as the east is from the west. That's what you've promised us, God. And for that we are eternally grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.